0: Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the adult meeting. Um, by God's grace, we'll continue uh, where we uh, uh, left off before in the liturgy series. Let me bring up my screen and we can uh, share it. Um, so uh, the, the, the place we left off before is, uh, today we're gonna talk about the liturgy and, and spiritual, spirituality. Um, last time we talked about liturgy and theology, and this time we're gonna talk about liturgy and uh, the spiritual life. Uh, probably one of the more important talks. Um, I'll start with this quote from St. John Chrysostom. It is needful to understand the miracle of the mysteries, what it is, why it was given, and what, it's, what is its profit. Is its profit. So um, again, always this is so important that we encompass both mind and body when we study. Uh, why do we study anything? Once again, it allows me to fully participate uh, with my whole being in the Eucharist. Um, and as the Eucharist is the central part of the Orthodox worship, um, it's so important that this is something we really understand so that we can delve into uh, just to, to penetrate what it is and what it does for us. Um, and this particular talk, the talk on spiritual life, is, is actually uh, the focus of all the other lessons, if you will, and it's supported by all of them. It's, it's kind of the um, the pinnacle of the whole thing, right? They derive their importance from this subject. So when we study about iconography or, or theology or history or any of those things, um, we're really talking about spiritual life and, and, and participating uh, in our own. So this is probably one of the most important talks uh, on the spiritual life. Quickly reviewing from last time, the liturgy is the work of the people. Um, lit means people, erg means work. So um, it's something we all do together as a group. Um, And this is very important for this particular talk, but going back to the Middle Ages talk, um, those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And so we wanna learn from what happened in the Western church, not because we wanna prove we're right and they're wrong and we're better and they're bad, uh, but rather that we just want to to, to make make sure we don't make our own mistakes. Um, We see that in the church. Uh, We studied this a few weeks ago. Western church made two mistakes. First, they allowed politics to enter into the church which we've always talked about as being a very dangerous thing since politics is all about power. And in Christianity, there is no power. The power is, is Christ uh, bends down and, and serves. Um, so there's no power structure in the church the way it is in the world. Uh, and then the use of Latin, where they insisted on using a, lang- a language that people didn't understand and how this devastated the spiritual life of the liturgy and the Eucharist. And the combination of these two factors really destroyed the spiritual life. Um, there's a split between spiritual life and liturgical life, right? Where you know I kind of have my own spiritual life on one side, but um, the uh, the liturgy is is something else. I just kind of attend the liturgy, but I have my own, you know, I have my own Bible study and my own singing group and my own hymns, and I say my do my own thing, and then I go to liturgy, right? And it splits the spiritual life and the liturgical life, and that's a very dangerous thing. Uh, and then, you know, even not even understanding the liturgy was okay. You just perform the liturgy, you do the things, you say the words, and everyone's happy. Uh, and this created a gulf between the, the the laity and the clergy. The clergy were these guys who just did the things, and the laity were the rest of us. And we all just kind of sat around and watched them do their thing, not really understanding what they're doing or why they're doing it, and ended up, um, you know, uh, this giving birth to the Protestant movements, right? Where, where the Protestant movement came in as kind of the people move of the masses where they said, look, forget this clergy, forget this liturgy, forget all this stuff. And it created this very widening gulf between um, the, the ritualistic uh, Catholicism that had occurred in the Middle Ages Uh, where all we focused on was the body and rituals, and there was no meaning and no spiritual life, to Protestantism, which reacted and said, no, 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 we're all going to be about the people, we're all going to be about spirituality, we're going to get rid of the clergy, we're going to get rid of the sacraments, we're going to get rid of the rituals, and we're just going to have spirituality. Uh, And Orthodoxy has always kind of been in the middle between these two extremes. Um, And we let many historians see the Protestant Reformation Revolution as a reaction, if you will, to uh, Catholicism. Uh, that had gone a little bit um, awry with, with its with its uh, a focus on, on ri- uh, ritualistic uh, intentions. Um, really important, uh, again, the, the liturgy can't be studied as a subject for knowledge and practical implications, right? I'm not just out here to study and learn a bunch of things so I can recite them to you and say, oh, well, this means this in the liturgy and this means that. And this part was instituted by, you know, such and such patriarch and this part that's not, that's not really important, right? We can't allow the liturgy to be reduced to some secular just study of stuff, right? Dates, names, facts, events. That's, that's not the liturgy. It's the liturgy studied for the sole purpose of the enhancement of your spiritual life and daily participation in the life, the feasts, the cycles, the events of the church. When we live in these cycles of the church, these feasts of the church, then, then we really participate in the whole being of the church much more than... Um, than if we don't understand them um and so you know we don't study for example the church building you know so i can learn the different names and rules regulating its 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 structure rather i want to elevate my mind to the the heavenly life i want to see what the church is trying to teach me with the church structure right and and have how that enhances my spiritual life when i'm in in the building Um, the church was designed in a certain way to guide the mind of the faithful right um, but this design is worthless if you don't understand the symbols, right? So some people really sat down and thought about these symbols and said, let's guide people to think about heavenly things. And then we'll do this, and this will mean this, and people will think about this. But if the people don't know that that's what that means, they just see a circle, and they go, oh, circle, you know, not a dome that represents uh, infinity, and there's alpha and omega, and there's no beginning and no end, and that's heaven, and heaven connects to earth. If I don't think all those things, and I think, oh, circle – then it kind of loses its purpose, right? There's no, there's no point in, in having designed a dome on a church in the first place. So we have to learn these things almost in an academic setting, but never let that be the goal and the end goal of, of why we learn these things. And it's a temptation that Satan uses on us um, sometimes. So the question is, what does an orange taste like? Um, this is a very beautiful picture of an orange. It's actually making my mouth water. Uh, so imagine for a moment someone who has never tasted an orange or any citrus for that matter, okay? And they ask you to write down the taste of an orange in a page. You say, I've never had an orange. Could you describe to me what an orange tastes like? And so you look at them and you go, well, I, I can't. In a page, I can't describe what an orange tastes like, right? And certainly if you did write something down, it it, it wouldn't encompass – all uh all the taste consistency general feeling of eating an orange right so when you write down your page of having eaten an orange whatever you write is woefully inadequate right it's lacking in 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 describing fully what an orange tastes like right now imagine let's take it another step further now someone else who's never tasted an orange reads your one page description okay and then decides to give a lecture to other people about what oranges taste like okay so first of all my one page on the orange is 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 terrible right it's there's no way it describes an orange and you've never had an orange you go read my one pager and then you say let me i'm an expert on this stuff let me tell a whole group of people about what oranges taste like right you can you can very safely assume that that lecture is very far off from the taste of an orange. Why? Because there's no experience, right? Because that person doesn't have any personal experience with the orange. And so he can't explain just by reading someone else's account right? about to someone else what an orange tastes like, right? If you want to give a lecture on an orange, you have to buy an orange, and you have to eat it, right? And that's the best way to talk about oranges, Okay, I know what you're all thinking. What's he talking about, right? And I, it reminds me of this psalm, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? David doesn't tell us, let me tell you, I've tasted God and he is good. He doesn't say that. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants you to taste what he's tasted, right? And in fact, I can, argue to, I can easily argue that what you will taste isn't what he tasted it's not exactly the same because your interaction with God is different than my interaction with God. Right. In fact, my interaction with this person, you can say, Oh, you should meet this guy. He's really great. Right. And your relationship with that person is not going to be like my relationship with that person. Right. And he's just a person. So imagine our relationships with God. Right. So in order to, to fully relay to others, what, the, the life with God is and what the Eucharist is, we have to have tasted it ourselves, right? As servants, as parents, as just general Christians who wanna to talk to people outside the faith, right? If we haven't experienced, then we can't describe, right? So knowledge should never allowed to be an end in of itself, right? We must have lived the liturgy ourselves, right? As parishioners and, 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 and have it had an effect on us, right? Be a part of our lives. So um, the Eucharistic life of, of Orthodoxy, and this is the, and this is Melty when he writes his books, he always talks about the Eucharistic life. He doesn't say spiritual life, he doesn't say churchy life. He says the Eucharistic life. It's like everything revolves around the Eucharist in our church, right? So the Orthodox Church differs from other, you know, uh, Christian sects, right? The center of our religion and our entire Christian worship is the Eucharist, right? We've learned this historically, we've learned it theologically, and now we're going to see how this is true spiritually. Right. And, and like I've said, you know, on, on other occasions, you know, we don't tell the children that the Eucharist is important. We tell them it's everything. Right? It's not just important. It's everything. It's our life. It's the center. Right. And in fact, everything you notice when we when we do things, we, we, ha- we always do them with the Eucharist. Right. So if, I, if it's the feast of St. Abram, the Bishop of Fayum, for example, and I want to celebrate his feast, what am I going to do? I can have a party. I can have a, a banquet. I can go and I can sing some songs. But what am I going to do? I'm going to have a liturgy, right? And this is how we commemorate any feast. It's a feast of the, of the circumcision. What am I going to do? I'm going to have a liturgy. The feast of resurrection, I'm going to have a liturgy, right? How do we start a meeting, for example, uh, when you know, I want to have a spiritual day uh, with the servants? What do we do? We start with, with the liturgy. Right. And how do I commemorate, for example, the repose of someone in our life? My great my my grandmother's passed away and this is the anniversary of her passing and I want to celebrate it. How do I celebrate it? I have a Eucharist. I have a liturgy. Right. And we do this on the one year anniversaries often of of people's reposals. This is what the church does. Right. When when a Buddha has to go to a really far away place and doesn't have a church and he can only get there once every month or once every two months. He doesn't go there and have, have a basketball league and a Bible study and a, even feeding the poor. He goes there, and he if he only has three hours a month, right, he's going to do one thing. He's going to do the Eucharist, right? And that's the one thing that's going to bring us all together, right? That's why even during the pandemic period, right, when, when all the church services were shut down, the only thing that the church tried to keep going was the Eucharist, right? So, so we're the body of Christ, right? And we become a body through the eucharist this is how we become united in christ and in each other as we learned last time right so therefore everything we do revolves around the liturgy it's the mystery of mysteries and it's the source of grace in the church right and all of the cycles of the liturgy you know that we have cycles in the in in the church right we have daily cycles we have a weekly cycle we have a monthly cycle we have an annual cycle there's these cycles that run in the church all of them Revolve around the liturgy, right? The daily cycle uh, of of vespers and matins and tezbeha—all of these are uh, in in around the, the liturgy, right? So these church these services were not put in place in and of themselves. We didn't just say, "Let's just have uh, ashaya let's just, or vespers, let's just have a tezbeha. Rather, but they're put in place to prepare everyone for communion right? So if I'm going to stay up all night and praise, I'm not going to do it just because it's fun or I I like the hymns or or, or they sound really cool. It's going to put me in the place for communion the next day, right? Uh, And they're not there so that Abuna and a handful of people can get them out of the way, right? Someone's got to do Vespers. Someone's got to do the Matins. Abuna, take a deacon and just get it out of the way. No, it's not there. You know, it's not like something we have to get done, right? You know, one time I heard a deacon say, oh, well, you know, what we do is during uh, Vespers, we say to Zbeha silently while Vespers is going so we can get it out of the way so we can go out to eat. And you're like, wow, you've really kind of lost the meaning of the whole thing. You know, I mean, at that point, you, you just think God's like going to check. Don't say it. You know, God's just going to check a box and say, oh, good. You said it silently. You weren't really paying attention, but you, at least you said the words. You know, what kind of spiritual life is that? Is that what, is that what Christ would have asked for? right? So we have to think about what these things are and how they relate to the Eucharist. All these things are there to prepare us for the Eucharist. So before I get into the spiritual life, I want to talk about this, this doc, the doctrine of grace and free will. And this is a, a big kind of thing, debate in the church um, uh, in, that's been going on. What does it mean? Simply, simply you know, the, the question is, if, if I see someone living a good life and they're free from sin or not free from sin, but they're good people, right? Is this person good because of God's grace, so God is helping them become good? Or is this person good because of their struggle against sin, right? And they have, they've been working hard and they have this personal struggle. Uh, which is it? Are they good because God made them good? Or are they good because they struggle against sin? Well, as you can guess, the answer is both, right? Both working together. Right. So certainly you one cannot dare assume that we can live a holy life without God's grace and God's guidance. Uh, uh, You know, that's that's crazy. Right. And then, you know, even in the Igbaya we say, you know, our prayers are all geared toward that way. Sanctify our souls, make chaste our bodies, correct our thoughts, purify our intentions, heal our sickness. Right. We ask God to do to us. Right. Do these things to me. Purify my intentions. I can't purify my own intentions. You purify them for me. I'm going to put them in your hand, right? But likewise, it would also be foolish to think God's grace without my own effort and my own struggle will accomplish anything, right? If I don't want to live a a pure life and I choose not to, then, then God can't force me, right? He's not going to impose himself on me. And there is struggle. In fact, the only thing we offer to God is struggle. That's all we have to offer. We can't offer good deeds because we don't have very many of those. We can't offer success and say, look, you know, we, we, we beat the sin or, or we did these really good things. We're great. All I can offer is a struggle, right? And I can put my struggle in God's hands and say, now you do the rest, right? And just like we talked about the five loaves and the two fish over and over, our struggle are the five loaves and the two fish. And the success that God gives is just a bounty, right? But but I have to put in the five loaves and the two fish. I have to put in that struggle as weak and as pathetic as it is. And sometimes I don't want to struggle. So sometimes all I can do is God give me the strength to struggle, right? When I met them, says, you know, all we have to do is we have to put our hand out like a beggar and say, God, give me. And we have to just put our hand out there. And sometimes we're so weak, we can't put our hands out there. So we say, God, can you please hold my hand out so that you can put food in it, right? Imagine the beggar who says, I can't put my hand out. Could you just grab my hand, hold it so that you can put food in it, right? So that's okay too, right? And God accepts that, you know, completely. So this is, this is, this is the the idea of grace and free will, right? This idea that the both have to be together, that one or the other isn't enough or can't be enough. So, uh, throughout history, and I'll give you a very brief historical thing, there's been people taking extremes on both sides. And just like we see with, with other things, orthodoxy is never a religion of extremes. It's always kind of in the middle. So this, this heretic named Pelagius in the 5th century, he, he denied the need for God's grace. Right? He said basically that the Pelagian heresy was free will alone. Man's works will save him. Okay? That man works for his salvation, earns his salvation. Right? And by doing these things, he earns salvation right and there's some people in our church today who kind of they may not say they're you know attribute their teaching to Pelagius, the heretic but they'll say the same kind of thing right well you have to work for it you know i have to earn it i i go to sunday i go to church every sunday i do this i fast i do you know the same stuff the pharisees said right and and they had these thoughts right we think these things you know that i've done this you know, i'm going to fast a whole fast and i'm going to do this as if that's going to earn me something right or Or, you know, I'm going to get a bunch of bonus points from God. And so he said, free man's free will alone could do it. You just have to will yourself to do it. Right. And then the other up extreme is obviously just grace alone does it. Right. And, and, and I really don't have to do anything. I don't have to struggle. And you know a, a, a bit of that has protestantism has a bit of that right where you know there's all about god's grace and it's all about how you know bad man is and man really has nothing good that comes out of them you're just horrible and of course you're horrible and of course you're going to be terrible but god's going to just cover everything right and interestingly august blessed augustine and and and, and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they call him Blessed Augustine. They don't call him a saint. He kind of leaned on this side a little bit, right? And and if you take that leaning just a little bit uh, uh, too far, right? You could you could kind of go down this path of of predestination, right? Because if God's grace does everything, and my will has nothing to do with it, right? This is just God's grace blesses you, right? Well, then the question is, who gets blessed and who doesn't get blessed, right? If if it's all coming from God. Well, then how does God pick him? And this guy's good because God made him good. And this guy's bad because God didn't make him good. So why did God make him good and God not make him good, right? And there's a bit of this predestination that comes out of it, right? In fact, Calvin, who, who really adopted this concept of predestination, um, got most of his fodder, his, his feed, from Augustine's writings, right, For, you know, in, in the fifth century. So Augustine had a little bit of this leaning where he's like because Augustine's background as you may know is a really bad guy right he was he was just a really bad person till he converted and so his view of people is like people are really bad right and everything good in my life came from god's grace i nothing good came from me which is a great attitude to have but his writings leaned a little bit too much Away from personal struggle and into just put it, you know, it's all God's grace, and you, you know, there's nothing you can do, and you're just a bad person, and of course you're going to keep sinning, and, and we have to offer this struggle. Uh, Pope Shenouda, uh, you know, used to say this, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek. He's, you know, sometimes we look at God and say, "Look, you want me to be good? Fine, I'll be good. You just sit back there and relax, God, and I will, I will work, and I will become good, right?" And and this is not. What, what God wants from us, right? He wants to work with us to accomplish his will, right? So we need God's grace in this daily struggle, okay? We, can't, we have a struggle, we have to have a struggle, but the fuel for, the, for this struggle and God's grace to overcome anything, um, is, is all, it all comes from, from, from the Lord, right? So it's just like the body needs nourishment to keep it strong, to resist disease and sickness, to get stronger and better. The soul needs this daily nourishment Right to aid it with its spiritual struggles against the disease of sin. Right, and and those of you who've who've tried to, to fight any sin, you know that you know you, you're you, you just, Satan just has to scratch at us just a little bit, and then we just fall right apart. Right, so that, that grace is very important. Right, so the question is, where does this grace come from that that we need so badly? Right, where where does this where does this happen? right and the church says that the fountain of grace and blessing in orthodoxy is the eucharist right? that's the fountain right and you think of a fountain the water just keeps coming up right and you don't know where it's coming from okay but it just keeps coming you know you whenever you've if you ever come across like a natural fountain or a natural spring in the in the in the earth it's just an amazing sight right? you look at it and water bubbles up from the earth and it doesn't stop bubbling up it just keeps coming So the Eucharist for us becomes this strength that we need in our daily fight against Satan. It's the spiritual food. Right. And just like the body becomes very weak if it doesn't eat, the soul becomes very weak if it's not spiritually uh, nourished. Right. And this is this is the nourishment. And this is why this I love this icon. This icon is talks about Christ as the fountain of grace. Right. And so here let's go back to this idea of synergy. Right. Man who's very limited, who's very weak, who's very fallen. He unites himself with the unlimited, right? And that's the only way to overcome the temptations of Satan, right? The limited unites with the unlimited, right? He said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, right? And we see this even in the Great Lent, right? We see that Christ fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So when I fast 40 days and 40 nights, I'm not just imitating Jesus. I'm not saying he fasted, I might as well fast. It's not that simple. I take my fast and I unite it to his fast, right? In fact, even in the refrain on Psalm 150, right? during the Lent, when, we, when, when we're giving communion and the, and the deacons are reciting the, the Psalm 150, in between the Psalms, right, we say Jesus Christ fasted for us or on our behalf, right? On our behalf. And in Arabic, it's more perfect. Anna, right? المسيح صام 40 days and 40 nights, right? He, he fasted on our behalf for us. So all I have to do is I have to take my weak, fate, my weak fast, my, my five loaves and two fish fast, fast, and I united with his fast, right? So I'm not just fasting because he fasted, I'm fasting with him. I'm fasting in him, right? My fast becomes a part of his fast. His fast is unlimited. My fast is very weak. And all I can offer is a struggle. And it's not a very good struggle. And then I have to ask God to help me with the struggle. And this is what the Eucharist is for us. And if you remember uh, from last time, this beautiful verse in the Gospel of John, I am the true vine, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Now we're starting to see what the, the meaning is. I can't bear fruit without Christ. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the true vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Right? So the fruit that, that comes out of us, and this is what keeps us humble as people, the fruit that comes out of us eventually, we know is Christ. It isn't even my fruit, right? And he says, You will bear much fruit apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's very true for those of us who have tried to, to live a spiritual life apart from God, we know. We can do nothing, right? If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned, right? So if you take a branch and you cut it off from the tree and you leave it on the ground, we all know what happens, right? The branch just dies, okay? And this is what happens to us when we don't partake of the tree of life, right? In the story of Adam, we know there's two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Christ is the tree of life. The Eucharist is the tree of life. Right. And and we become a branch in that tree of life. And he's the one who sustains us and gives us life that pulses through us like a fountain. This quote from last time, just as by melting two candles together, you get one piece of wax, I think, so I think one who receives the flesh and blood of Jesus is fused together with him by this communion. And the soul finds that he is in Christ and Christ is in him. So again, another image. You have the tree and the branches, the fountain that comes up, and this, he says, is take, pick, take two pieces of wax and you melt them into liquid, and then you let them dry and harden and become one piece of wax, right? You can't see where one wax stops and the other one begins, right? And this is the uniting the infinity with uh, the, the finite with the infinity, right? The unlimited with the limited, right? Take my weakness, unite it with strength, right? And this is the concept that we're trying to put together. This is how spiritual life has to progress. Right? And we all know this this story, might mine, famous. But Pope Cyrilus of uh, blessed memory, uh, Pope Cyrilus the he made it a, a, a part of his uh, patriarch, and even before he was a patriarch, that he would take communion every day. So even when he had to fly to another country on an airplane. You know, he would land and, you know, he was, he was the, the, the political head of the Coptic Church. He would go to, you know, different countries and, and meet dignitaries. And, you know, imagine he would fly to Rome and meet the Pope or something. And he'd say, you know, if you don't mind, I just landed. It's 8 a.m. But before we do, could I just run in and pray liturgy very quickly and then we can have our meetings, right? He did that with several dignitaries and kings and emperors and all kinds of people. He insisted that the Eucharist be a part of his daily his daily bread. So, one of the spiritual concepts of, of communion, and we're almost done here, is there's also uh, the practice of taking communion is done in extreme ways, and neither one is really recommended by the church. One extreme is that people think communion is so holy, right, that approaching it without being worthy brings on condemnation, right? And this this point is true to some degree, that, that taking communion unworthily, it brings out condemnation. But this position can take a very prevalent role in in people's minds, right? Such that they don't want to take communion. And then they even wait years or longer, right? Because they're like, I'm just not worthy. I'm just not worthy. I'm just not worthy, right? And then this is where we have some problems, right? And actually, we find this in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, where they kind of have a tradition of not taking communion for a very long time among the people. They have this very embedded tradition. And and the, the clergy are working very hard to stop it. And you know, they're like, no, you need to come and commune more often. Right? So if you think that way, the question is, well, then what's worthy? Right? Uh, is there anyone worthy of communion at any point in time? Right? And then what's even worse is if you think that, and then you show up to liturgy one day, and say, OK, now I'm worthy. Well, now we even have a bigger problem. Because right? anyone that thinks they're worthy of communion no matter how long you've now you've fallen into some kind of hubris right arrogance right if if you think you're worthy at this point um then now we have a bigger problem right so you're never worthy of communion so what does the word worthy mean it simply means i'm living a repentant life right Uh, a heart uh repentance over my past sins and an earnest desire to submit my life to god and to be better and to live with him in holiness right and to try with his help to overcome sin this is this is what worthiness is. It's not being good. It's not doing all the right things. It's like, I'm going to keep trying. I'm, my focus is to live with God and yeah, I'm broken and I'm a person and I'm a sinner, but I'm going to try and I'm going to keep trying. And that is what worthiness is, right? That's what makes us worthy to take communion. It's not being in a sinless state because that's not going to happen. Right. And if you think it did happen and that you are in a sinless state somehow, well, now you're just delusional because you're not, right? Um, Archbishop Paul of Finland says, nice quote, he says, let no one, however, because of his unworthiness, fail to accept the Lord's invitation heard in the liturgy, or think that by receiving communion less often, he can prepare for it better and be more worthy. The sense of unworthiness is just the right mood. The only one which permits us to share in God's supreme gift, right? So I love that. The sense of unworthiness is the right mood. How do you know you're worthy? It's when you realize you're unworthy, right? In fact, in the liturgy, we say, one is the holy, uh, Abuna says, holy things for the holy, right? And when he says holy things for the holy, this is near the end of the liturgy. We should all kind of just like, ugh, you know, I wish you hadn't said that, right? Because there ain't no holiness over here. But when he says holy things for the holy, it's like my natural response is what? What is the response when Abuna says holy things for the holy? We say, one is the Holy Father, one is the Holy Son, one is the Holy Spirit. We say, the only one that's holy is you, God, not me. And in fact, every time we say the word holy, we make the sign of the cross as if to say that his, the only way I'm going to become holiness, his holiness is, is blessing me, right? That's, that's where holiness comes from. Right? So it's the feeling of being unworthy, that makes us worthy right to take communion and don't ever think that you know oh i'm gonna abstain from the sin or i'm gonna try to be good and that's you know sin as we all do right and when we do come to communion unworthily right and that feeling is is what what drives us um nope oh, okay uh all right so Ah, uh, fasting before communion is another important uh, point. Uh, Saint John Chrysostom says, "But you, will you fast before you partake, so that you may somehow appear worthy of communion?" Right. And so there is a long tradition of fasting before communion. And and I'll read to you this quote from Isidore. He says, "The apostles did not communicate fasting because it was necessary that the figurative Pascha must be f- first be fulfilled." So. What he's trying to point out here is, you know, we often say this: is well, the disciples ate right before they took communion, right? We had the Passover, uh, the Passover meal, and then they took communion together. So why do we have to fast when the the, the initial apostles didn't fast? Christ didn't instit- institute it that way. But what these quotes are showing is that from the earliest years, people were fasting before communion. The question is why. So he addresses it. He says the apostles didn't communicate fasting because it was necessary. That the figurative Pas- Pascha might be fulfilled, and we'll talk about this next time. But the the the, the Eucharist was a, was prefigured in the Old Testament with the Pascha, okay. And so what Christ wanted to do is he took the Pascha, the Passover, and he said, okay, that's the Passover. We're going to eat that first, and then right after it, I'm going to give you the new Passover, right? The you know the, the real sacrifice, right? Where you know the Passover was a, a lamb that died so that the the people of Israel could live. Well let me show you the real lamb that dies so that people can live. Right. So he put the two together to connect them in our minds. I'm gonna have the Passover and then I'm gonna have communion and I'm gonna show you what the new Passover looks like. And and this is why as, as Christians we don't have the Passover meal anymore. Right? We don't do that. Although Moses commanded that every generation do the Passover to commemorate this event of being saved from the people of Israel. Now we don't do that as Christians. We stopped And the reason we stopped is that Passover was just symbolic, was a type of the real Passover. It was a part of the mystery that the disciples first did not receive the body and blood of the Lord, body and blood of the Lord fasting. But now it is received through the entire church by those who are fasting. So this is back in 560 AD. John Chrysostom was before that, a century before that. So you can see that fasting before communion is a very, very old tradition. For thus was it pleasing to the Holy Spirit through the apostles that in honor of so great a sacrament that the Lord's body should enter into the mouth of a Christian before any other food. And this is what we say to this day, right? Before you put any other food in your mouth, let the body of, of the Lord be the first thing you put in your mouth, right? Let it take the honorary role, right? Let it, let it you know, break the fast of, 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 of sleeping. Let that be, you know, as opposed to having like, I'm going to have a cheeseburger and then I'm going to have communion and then I'm going to have fries, right? Let, let the communion have a better place than that, right? Then, you know, after a breakfast burrito, then I'll take communion and then I'll, you know, have some salsa, right? <laughs> right. And on that account, this practice is observed throughout the whole world for the bread, which we break is the body of Christ. So this is why we do fasting before communion. And sometimes we get a little carried away with the, the nine hours. So nine hours is a general guideline. It's not a hard and fast rule. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, we'll say, oh, it has to be the midnight, the night before, This isn't the this isn't the primary purpose of fasting. It's not like, oh shoot, it's twelve oh three PM, you know, AM or uh, twelve three AM and I, you know, I can't fast any, you know, I can't take communion tomorrow because it's three minutes over. This is not the way Christians operate, right? This is this is, you know, something very pharisaical. We have to think about fasting as, as imposing on myself a restriction. If something comes up, whether it be medicine or an accident or I need water or something, obviously the church is going to give us uh, uh, an absolution to do that. Now I want to talk very briefly about confession and communion. Um, there's another notion that confession, the act of confession to the priest, is the sole key of worthiness to communion and this is also not very accurate right taking having confession once every one or two months three or four months sometimes is fine right it's not like i have to take have to have confession before communion every single time or i want to take communion but i didn't confess this week right no confession isn't that right confession is is not like well i gotta you know get every single sin so that i'm worthy somehow of communion because now i'm i'm pure no we we always take communion unworthily we always take communion impurely right that's you know, I mean, even if you had confession the day before, most likely during the liturgy at some point, you're going to look at someone or you're going to think something and you'll sin during the liturgy at some point. I know I have. Um, so this I, this uh, ideal that, you know, if I can confess the night before, then I take it pure, you know, you're not going to be pure, right? So um, the church doesn't expect you to go confession every single time, right? So it's not so much the confession, the absolution in the confession That makes us worthy right but it's the feeling of being unworthy that makes you worthy right um and uh oh okay so i uh okay so 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 and if and if you wait until all this happens right and you say well i want to be this pure person when i take communion you need communion to be a pure person right and so there's this kind of catch-22 you you know to say i'm going to wait till i become pure and then um and then, uh, then take communion. Well, how can you take, how can you take communion? How can you become pure without the, the grace of God? In fact, what's happened is you fall into Pelegius's heresy at this point, right? It, if you say, I'm going to be good on my own, and then I'll take the grace of God. Well, then now that's what Pelegius believed, right? That the heretic that we talked about, right? So, you know, a sick person doesn't say, I don't want to go to the doctor right now, because I'm feeling sick. I'll wait till I'm feeling better, right? Uh, and then I'll go to the doctor. You know, it's obviously, when you say it like that, you realize it's stupid, right? It's not very, you know, and so the, the sick feeling or the feeling of being unworthy or the, or the the problem is just the right time to go to the doctor, right? In fact, it's the best time to go to the doctor, right? You don't say, I'm going to wait till I beat this cancer, and then I'm going to go to the hospital, right? You go to the hospital so you can beat the cancer, okay? And so, so communion uh is that, it's that grace, and that's how we uh, uh, move forward. And then the second kind of extreme, I think my slides are out of order, that's what confused me. So the first extreme is I'm gonna wait till I'm completely ready and I'm good and I'm holy before I take communion. And then the second extreme is another very common one, which is more common, I think, is taking communion for people who are absolutely no regard for what they're doing. Right. Or they take communion out of some weekly routine or even more. I go Wednesday and I go Friday and I go Saturday and I go Sunday. Okay, that's wonderful, right? But do you have any regard for what you're taking? right? Or are you just going as a, as a, you know, as a habit, right? As a, you know, as a ritual, as a, as a way to feel good about yourself and just kind of get it out of the way, right? So here we have to heed the warning of St. Paul. St. Paul says in the epistle of the Corinthians, so then whoever eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, right? So there's some very strong admonitions in the Bible about taking communion unworthily, right? And again, uh, oh, this is the part I said before the the priest says holy things are for the holy So we must be holy and pure to partake of communion and should never allow it to be a routine thing Right? those who allow it in themselves to fall into this weekly routine Take a dangerous path and they have to talk to their father uh, In confession about this right where he's like I just kind of show up and I just stand there for a while and I take communion and I leave and nothing changes right and and if we don't see change in the life of a christian is if there isn't a struggle if there isn't growth in the life of the christian something's wrong something's wrong and and we have to fix it if if i go every week and i just kind of take communion and i leave and i leave you know when i look at the story of the samaritan woman right christ was with her for half an hour and he changed her life and i have to believe that whenever light meets darkness light has to win and that goodness has to overcome evil So when I meet Christ, if I really meet Christ, I can't come away from the experience the same. I mean, you know, people say, I I met the the Dalai Lama and it changed my life. Well, Dalai Lama's a guy, right? And, And so it can never be the case that I can meet Christ, really meet Christ and just come away, yeah, just like I was, right? Then I didn't really meet Christ. And if I'm not really meeting Christ, then something's wrong. Maybe I'm taking communion unworthily. When I say worthy, not because it's good or bad, unworthy, like I don't really feel unworthy. I don't really have any regard for what I'm doing. I just kind of show up. You know, I think of Simon the Pharisee when he invited Jesus into his home and he had no idea who he invited into his home, right? I mean, other people would like, this is the couch that Jesus sat on. This is the couch that Jesus sat on. Simon looks him up and down and goes, who is this guy? This guy even for real, right? It's a totally different. And that's why Simon got nothing out of it. Right? Whereas the, the woman that then came, the sinful woman that cried on his feet and washed them with the, with the hair of her head, she got everything. Right? So you have two people that showed up to communion. One got everything and one got nothing. In fact, one got, as St. Paul says here, one got condemnation. Simon was condemned. He says, you never even washed my feet with water. And she washed them with her tears. You never dried them. She dried them with her hair. And the fathers are completely against this notion of refraining from communion until they're worthy. So nobody wants you to wait till you're worthy, right? But encourages everyone to continue taking communion. Communion is an invitation. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. And he wants us to continue doing it. And that's what the apostles did. Uh, St. John Cassian, I'll give you a few more quotes and then I'll, I think that's it. We should not however suspend ourselves from the Lord's communion because we realize that we are sinners rather more and more. We should hasten to it with eagerness for healing of soul and purification of spirit, but with such humility and faith that we judge ourselves unworthy to receive so great a favor. So you see that the balance here, we should rather more and more hasten to it as healing of soul and purification of spirit, but with faith and humility enough to know and judge ourselves unworthy of it. So I want it and I hasten towards it, but I know I'm not worthy of it. But yet I keep going towards it. I don't let the unworthiness stop me and I don't let the hastening towards it just be hastening without humility and feeling unworthy. Otherwise, we must not presume to receive communion worthily even once a year, as some do who live in monasteries they esteem the dignity and sanctity and value of the heavenly sacrament so highly that they consider that only the holy and pure should receive it rather than that it makes that rather than that it makes us holy and pure by partaking of it. Right? So he, he kind of says the same thing in this quote. He says, uh, these people esteem it so highly that they think only the holy and pure should receive it rather than thinking it receiving, it will make me holy and pure. Surely they fall into a greater arrogance of presumption than they think that they are avoiding, because at least when they do receive it, they think they are worthy to receive it, right? So he's saying this is so arrogant, right? If you say I'm only going to take it when I'm holy and pure, wow, God help you when you when you take it, right? I'd love to you know watch you take and go really. So today's your day. Today's the day you're holy and pure. But it is far better to receive the sacrament as a remedy for our ills on every Lord's Day with that humility of heart whereby we believe and confess that we can never worthily come to those sacred mysteries. Right. So keep taking it and always believe you can never worthily come to it than to be carried away by a vain belief that we are worthy to partake. Right? So this is kind of the, I have a lot of quotes here by different fathers. I'm not sure I will uh, read them all to you. Um, I'll, I'll put them up slowly so that you can, uh, you can read them and by pausing the, the, the YouTube bit at some point or the video. Um, so just to end, h- how do we benefit from the liturgy? You get out of it what you put into it. Uh, the benefit depends on the preparation of the heart. And this is true of anything, right? It could be from school to physical exercise, right? The benefit received equals the effort exerted. And the Eucharist is no different, right? If we come to the liturgy with the attitude of, okay, I'm here, I made it, impress me, do something, do your thing, right? This person gets nothing out of it. This is the Simon of the world, right? Who invites Christ in and has no idea who he just invited into his house, right? Because not, we're not putting anything into it, right? And this goes back to, the, to the, the first talk, right? And what we said in the beginning of this talk, work of the people. There is a work that has to happen here. Right, it's not just abunas and the deacons. Right, active participation means active, physically active, singing, performing the rituals, using your mind to focus on the words and the prayers, and putting yourself in that place. That's not easy to do, right? Especially for two hours, it takes concentration, especially in today's day and age where concentration is out the window, right? You know, you have 10 second TikTok videos if TikTok sticks around. Um, but, you know, ultimately, it takes effort, right? It takes a mind. It takes, you know, brain power to sit there and focus for that long. But that's where, the, that's where the benefit is. It's like saying, well, you know, if I, you know, to learn all those things, I'd really have to study, you know, and I'd have to sit there and really learn, you know. Well, yeah, that's true. That's the only way you're going to learn. Well, if I really want to get in shape, I really got to work out really hard. and I got to like sweat and stuff and my heart rate's got to go up, you know, before I, before I get in shape. I don't want to do that. Okay, then don't. But, but then don't complain when we're not in shape or don't complain when I don't have any knowledge and I don't get A's. Right? So understanding the prostrations, understanding prostration, sign of the cross, mentally flowing, it takes a lot out of us, right? And we see that even the disciples didn't have a great track record, right? So, you know, in the Last Supper, all 12 of them took communion. One then goes betrays him, Judas. One denies him, Peter. Nine of them fled. Okay, And only one of them, St. John, made it, the beloved, made it to the cross. Okay, so the all 12 took communion. And then after that, the track record is pretty lousy. right? <laughs> they all just take off. One denies. One, you know, Peter swears and curses that he doesn't know the guy. Judas goes and betrays him. So it's not a great track record, right? So there's no guarantees, you know, uh, uh, of, of, the, of the situation, right? And only one followed him to the cross. But that's okay, right? We'll, we'll, we'll try to keep hoping to be that one. Uh, every every single Sunday. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. And God bless you guys. Uh, one of these days, I'll get to see you all in person. Um, and uh, th- thanks for, for tuning in. I know it's very difficult in Zoom and and uh, hoping that uh, all of you stay hold- healthy and and uh, don't lose your minds in your houses. Try to get out every once in a while and, and see the sights. Okay. God bless. And uh, I'll talk to you later.